Good to see you. My name is Lewis, and uh, it is so great to see you out this morning, especially if it's your first time. I'm trying to reiterate what Ian and Johnny said, a really warm uh, welcome on this final Sunday uh, of Advent. And uh, as Ian said, this morning we are looking at the theme of uh, love, the Advent, the coming of love. And a really common phrase that you'll hear all the time today is, love is love. Right, you see it all the time. You'll see it on placards, uh, in adverts. You'll see politicians tweet it and sports players stand for it. Love is love. And without kind of wading into a discussion on marriage and sexuality, the phrase love is love actually communicates something much deeper about our kind of cultural assumptions. And namely, it's that love means really today whatever we want it to mean love today for most of us means anything that affirms us and makes us feel good. In the place of a kind of robust and genuine definition of love, love to our modern imag- imaginations is really just found in, hey, do what makes you feel good. We love one another today by saying, you do you. But on this final week of Advent, when we come to this topic of love, we want to come to not just a kind of flaky, flimsy definition of love, but something firm, something robust. We want to come to an understanding that isn't just made up of whatever strikes our fancy. I think this is more pressing than ever at this time of year. Adverts and Christmas movies were suddenly surrounded by ideas of love. Every single Christmas movie ends with the unlikely couple The big city executive and the lovely little small town baker falling in love. That's Christmas to us. It's love. We're surrounded by love. Love is in the air. But what does the Bible teach about love? Is the kind of fulfillment of love found in that kind of meet cute romance? In what way does the story of Christmas, the story of Advent, have love at the center? And actually, for that matter, what is love in the first place. That's where we're going today, this morning. We want to say two things. First, that love comes from God. And second, that love comes to us. We said a few weeks ago, week one of Advent, that Advent begins in the dark and moves to the light. And we've gone through hope and peace and joy. And in many ways today, we've traveled from the dark and we want to arrive in the light this morning, the light of God's Love. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to 1 John chapter 4? And we'll just read verses 8 to 10 together. 1 John 4, 8 to 10. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this Way God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Christmas is funny, isn't it? You find this like, a culture that has moved on from tradition, that we just view ourselves as being very rational 
very kind of enlightened. We don't bother with tradition anymore. Suddenly, those of us that hate tradition are shoving candles in oranges and singing Christmas carols and going to all these services. What is going on when the, the calendar turns to December and suddenly we become religious again, it seems? I think what's going on is what the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor called the hauntedness of a secular age. What he means by that is that many of us today, we believe with our minds that there's nothing more than material. But we're haunted with the reality of something more. It follows us around. We have this nagging sense there is more to life than this. Whether it's social justice, the value of human life, the universe, or a traditional kind of idea of God. Christmas tends to remind us that there's something going on behind the something of our lives. And when Christmas hits, we want in on it. Even if just for two weeks, we want in on the something more. But at Christmas, when we sing carols and enjoy the festivities, it's like we're kind of splashing around in a puddle splashing around in a puddle. Look, if you're a kid and you have your wellies on and you come across a puddle, it can be great fun, but it's not the ocean. It's not the ocean. And our Christmas traditions are like puddles, little glimmers of the truth that is the ocean of Christmas. So what is the ocean? What does stand behind Christmas? What is the something behind the something? When I was younger and I would go in to say goodnight to my dad every night. He had a little TV in the corner of his room and every single night he was watching a show called How Things Work. And in the show they would just peel back the layers of different inventions, they would take them apart and they'd get to the core how this thing works, the thing that made everything tick. Now if they were to do a How Things Work for the universe, if you were to dissect the universe to its core to get underneath the subatomic particles, to get to time before time, to get outside of space, what would you find? What would be the thing behind the thing? Well, the Bible's answer is on the very first page. In the beginning, God. Specifically, the God that John here in our passage calls love. In other words, John says, if you were to peel back the layers of the universe like an onion, you would find in the middle love. Love is at the center of everything. The thing behind the thing that you are always chasing is love. Not random processes or chance evolution, not survival of the fittest, but love. Love created the universe. Love upholds the universe. God is love. That's what John says, that's what the Bible says. The Trinitarian community of love that we call God existed before you and I, before everything that we see in love was ever here. In eternity past, God was not lonely, desperate for company. He was existing within himself in a community of mutual love, three in one. God has never been without someone to love. We see a glimpse of this in John 17 where Jesus prays to God and he says this. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. Glory you have given me. 
before the creation of the world. You see what's going on there? Before atoms, before stars, before Christmas markets, God existed as three persons in one, the eternal God of love. Whether you're a Christian or not, that's beautiful. Love stands behind the universe. I can hear you thinking, I knew it. I knew it. Love is the purpose of everything. But remember what we said at the beginning. Love is love is a meaningless and pithy phrase. If I was to close my Bible right now and sit down, you would leave here remaking God in an image of your own choosing. God is love. That means that God is X, Y, or Z. That means that God affirms everything about me and he just wants to make me feel good. We need to keep reading. We need to keep reading to see how John defines what it means that God is love. What we'll see from John is this. Love isn't just from God, but love comes to us from God. Or in other words, love is not just a noun. Love is also a verb. Love comes to us. Before I became a Christian, when I was 19, I kind of practiced secular Buddhism for a while. And I used to do this thing. I would wake up in the morning and every day to meditate. Part of the kind of practice I had was this thing called meta meditation. Meta meditation is really easy. It's just a way to train yourself to love and care for people that you don't like very much. And so we could do it now in church. <laughs> All you do is you bring someone to mind that you don't like. And you, we're all great people. It's going to be hard. Let's pretend that we have people we don't like. And we'll draw them to mind. And we just think of good things happening to them. We think of them being successful. Think of them getting on well with people and finding love. And then you just kind of will it in your mind to happen. That's meta-meditation in a nutshell. Now look, maybe that is an adequate way to sit up after meditation and think, I feel like a little better towards that person. I feel a little better. If you want in on a secret, I once did that thinking about Abby's ex-boyfriend. <laughs> wow. Wow. Here's another secret. I never stood up from doing that, left the house, and did anything about it. I never stood up and went out and made amends with those people. I never went out and served them. I never went out and loved them. Maybe it's helpful to put it this way. There is a difference between compassion and love. Compassion is a feeling word. Maybe you want to sit in your room and think nice thoughts about someone. Maybe you'll become more compassionate. That's fine, but love is a doing word. Love is a doing word. We know this. We know this. There's a reason that people are outraged every time Christians in America only send thoughts and prayers when a tragedy strikes. Come on, we need more. We need to do something. Love doesn't just feel, it moves, it does something. Jesus puts it so simply. He says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Or in other words, love is active. It's not passive. 
the philosopher Martin Heidegger wrote this. He said, why is love rich beyond all other possible human experiences and such a sweet burden to those seized in its grasp? Because we become what we love and yet remain ourselves. Or in other words, and in agreement with the Bible, love changes us. Love draws us to act. It draws us out of ourselves towards the object of our love. That is what love does. That is exactly what John testifies to in this passage. Look again at verse 9. He says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is what we remember and reenact through nativities and carols and traditions and Christmas. But the danger again is that we stay in the puddle. We stay in the puddle. We don't get to the ocean of what is going on on that first Christmas day. What was really happening in that manger in Bethlehem in 2 or 3 AD? What was really going on? Well, in the final Narnia book, The Last Battle, the last king of Narnia, Tyrion, is at war and him and his followers are pressed up against this barn, this stable. And inside they know that the false evil god, Tash, is lurking. They don't want to go inside, but the army continues to press them and press them and they're forced to head in. And what they expect to find is this small shack with death waiting inside and they don't find Tash at all. They find another world completely. Let me quote to you from that section of the book. It says, Tyrion looked around again. He could hardly believe his eyes. There was a blue sky overhead and grassy country spreading as far as he could see in every direction and his new friends all around him laughing. It seems then, said Tyrion, smiling himself, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Yes, said the Lord Diggory, it is bigger inside than it is outside. Yes, said Queen Lucy, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. It was the first time she had spoken, and from the thrill in her voice, Tyrion now knew why. She was drinking everything in more deeply than the others. She had been too happy to speak. C.S. Lewis inserts into this fictional world a glimmer of the true nature of that first Christmas morning. The stable in Bethlehem was bigger on the inside than it was on the outside. Not because of some trick, not because like the wardrobe in Narnia, no, because God himself, the creator of everything around you, the one who gives you breath, the one who gave you life, the one who keeps the stars spinning in the sky, who forever and ever has been worshipped by millions of angels who sing, holy, 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 king forever. That God was born in a stable God, who is bigger than all creation, somehow fit himself inside of a barn. Do you ever wonder how the barn doors didn't burst open when he was born? Jesus of Nazareth was and is not just a Christmas fable. 
He wasn't even just a great man. He is both fully, eternally the God of the universe and now forever a man like you and I. In other words, behind the puddle of Christmas, here's the reality. In 2 or 3 AD, the world was kept spinning on its axis by a newborn baby. Christmas is not a cute children's tale. It is the immortal becoming mortal. The invisible becoming visible. The unknowable made known. The powerful made very weak and helpless. Remember this the next time you hear or sing these words in the famous Christmas carol. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Inside the stable on the first Christmas morning, we don't just find a cute little angelic baby. And we find the God of love. He has come to us in love as a wailing infant. Maybe this is your first time in church in a while. If it is, I just wonder how you view God. Maybe he's like Santa, very distant, somehow mysteriously operating this 24-7 surveillance program. He's very distant. You wait up to hear Santa, but he only makes noise when you fall asleep. He won't let you hear him. He won't let you get to him. But he sees you when you're sleeping, and he knows when you're awake. Maybe God's like Elf on the Shelf, a tool designed by humans to keep you in line. Is Christianity just a tool to keep you behaving? The message of Christmas is this. God is not watching you and waiting for you to trip up. He is not distant. He is not uninterested. He is not fundamentally a taskmaster. God is love and love comes to us demanding to be found by finding us. John keeps going. Have a look at verse 10 with me. Verse 10, John says, Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, here we go. Here we go, you're thinking, I can get on board with God as love. I can even get on board with the God in the manger if you really push me, but come on, a week before Christmas, atoning sacrifice. I thought we were talking about love. How did we get here? I wonder if you could think of it this way. The more that you love something, the more fiercely you will defend it. The more that you love your kids, the more you will be capable of a genuine and good anger against those who would hurt them. Love cannot function in a broken world without wrath, without anger. And God, who is love, is rightly angry about our sin. He's rightfully angry about the state of this world. He's rightly angry when he looks and sees the crown jewel of his creation. That's us. Reject him. He's rightly angry. The good news 
the good news of Christmas is this. God's anger does not drive him to reject us. It drives him to draw near to us in love and to do something about the problem. Forty years ago, the really famous phrase was coined, a dog is for life. Genius. <laughs> Look, the same is true of Jesus. He is not just a cute symbol for Christmas Day. One day the baby Jesus would grow up. He would leave the stable and he would teach and he would heal and he would forgive. And one day Jesus would trade his wooden manger for a wooden cross. He would trade his crown of cute baby hairs for a crown of thorns. Christmas reminds us that the blood that was bled on Good Friday was not the blood of a martyr, it was the blood of God. Christmas points us to the day when Jesus traded his gurgling and cooing in the cradle for the most important and wonderful words ever spoken. It is finished. That's what Christmas points us to. How does God do something about the problem of sin? He comes to us, not just to tell us what he's like, but to lay down his life for us. The God of life dies for us. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, man's maker was made man so that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witness. The teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. C.S. Lewis famously said that to love at all is to risk heartbreak. God did not risk heartbreak in loving you. He just threw everything away. He didn't risk anything. He calculated the cost and he laid down his life for us. God's love led him, the immortal one, to die. Led the one who knows no loneliness to thirst for his Father's presence on the cross. He did that so that you and I don't have to live with the problem of sin anymore. He did this because Jesus didn't just take on our humanity. He took on the curse of our humanity, the curse that we deserve. He didn't just face the weakness of being a person, but the anger that we deserve from God. And he substituted himself for us. So John is saying he was an atoning sacrifice so that all of those who call him Lord don't live under the dark cloud of God's anger anymore, but in the freedom of his love. God sent his son into the world to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Do you know what that means? It means if you're a Christian, when you sin and you look at yourself and you think for the 100th time, I wish I was different. Why am I like this? You can look at that person and say, thank you, Lord, that he is dead. 
Thank you, Lord. He is dead, and the one who is alive in me is Jesus. I'm going to look at my mess and say, thank you, Lord, that he is dead. Because of Jesus, you can move from being God's enemy to being his friend. You can move from death to life, from darkness to light, from brokenness to wholeness. That is what Christmas points forward to. You don't get to take Jesus for Christmas. Christmas is proof that we are on the one hand so desperately sinful that we need God to come to us. Bad news. But it is glorious proof on the other that we are so eternally loved that the God of history would step into his creation and die in our place. Or as the Apostle Paul worded it, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I asked a family member to come along to church once and she said the classic cliche phrase, I think I would burst into flames if I walked through the door. Look, here's the reality. Without the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, I would burst into flames. And so would you. The solution is not to withdraw from the hope of salvation. It is to draw near to him. It is to come close to the one who has done something about the problem of your sin. Don't keep him at arm's length. Please don't keep him at arm's length. John wrote in verse 8 that Jesus came into the world so that we might have life. So that we might have life. And look, in eight days' time, the puddle of Christmas will feel like a puddle again. It won't be sufficient to give you joy anymore. You know the Boxing Day blues. You know them. Turkey's eaten, the presents are opened, your kids have already moved on from all those expensive presents you bought them, you don't know the day of the week, and suddenly the reality of real life just begins to loom again. I don't want to be morbid, I don't want to be sad, I don't want to dampen your expectations, but Boxing Day will not bring you joy, and God is going to pose a question to you this morning. On Boxing Day, when the Christmas, post-Christmas blues descend, will you hunker down and splash around in your puddle? Or will you trust the ocean of God's love to bring you life? The church father, Irenaeus of Leon, wrote that through God's love, he became what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he himself is. That means Jesus entered the weariness of this world so that through him you could enter eternal life beginning today. Beginning today. Eternal life does not just refer to quantity, it refers to quality. To life with God folded into the eternal love of the Trinity that has existed forever and ever that is available to us. Not once a year, splashing around in puddles, pretending everything's okay, but eternal life. God is love. And love has come to us 
in the person of Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sin so that we might have life. Frederick Dale Brunner wrote a commentary on the Gospel of John. He writes this in it. Let me finish by reading this. Would you just receive this as God's invitation to you this morning? He says this, Come into union with the Word who made you, and you will come to life. You came from Him. Please come back to Him. You were made for Him. The result of this reunion will be more than human existence. It will be human life.